Thank you, Bob. Uh, so last week, we talked about wolves. We talked about how to spot a wolf by their fruit, that wolves produce a certain type of fruit. But oftentimes, wolves, are they're smart, they're cunning. They can produce fruit that looks real. It's fake fruit, right? Have you ever walked into a dining hall or, or someone's dining room and you saw fruit on the table and you thought, wow, that fruit looks delicious. You walk over and you touch it and it is plastic. And the thing about fake fruit is it looks really good, but it is toxic. So wolves, you know, oftentimes we think about, I could easily spot a wolf because a wolf would produce fruit that's easily to spot. It's, it's kind of disgusting. We, when we think of wolves and their fruit, we think of like rotten fruit. We buy bananas. Sometimes I wonder why we buy bananas. Because bananas, I, I love bananas. Bananas are really good for like a day, right? Like there's the two green, one day of perfect, and then the two bruised, right? So, so we oftentimes have rotten bananas and they're easy to spot. But wolves produce fake fruit. When I think about the wolves, I always think about Little Red Riding Hood. Did anybody as a kid listen to that story and think, what is going on with Little Red Riding Hood? How does she not so easily spot the wolf? I mean, I know my grandma. My grandma looks nothing like a wolf. If there was a wolf dressed in my grandmother's clothing, I would easily spot it. And it just seems so silly. And yet, as a church, I think oftentimes we are that Little Red Riding Hood. We just can't spot the wolf. And the reason why we can't is because they produce fake fruit. Fruit that looks real but is toxic. And therefore, it is incredibly difficult to recognize. Wolves are deceptive and they are dangerous. They are cunning. And this week, as we continue our sermon series titled Following, a study through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk about a different type of deception. A type of deception that is just as difficult to spot, and yet I think can actually be more dangerous than a wolf. So open with me, if you will, to Matthew 7. We're actually going to finish the Sermon on the Mount today. That's, that's pretty awesome, huh? So we'll, we'll pick up in verse 21. If you remember Jesus, if you remember the setting, Jesus, uh, he just came off of a preaching tour. He, he settles down and the multitudes are following him. They're following him because he does all these miracles. And these miracles authenticate his claim. He has two claims, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, come in the flesh. And so these miracles, if I ever walked up to you and I said, hey guys, guess what? I'm God come in the flesh. What's your reaction going to be? That dude's crazy. Don't listen to him. He's crazy. We might need to get him checked into this asylum, right? Don't listen. But now let's say I walked up to you and said, guess what? I'm, I'm God come in the flesh and check this out. I'm going to raise someone from the dead. And you see someone come back to life. Someone you knew was dead. Well, all of a sudden you're thinking a little bit harder about my claim, right? 
So that's what's going on. The, the miracles that Jesus do, does authenticate his claim. And he's got a pretty God-sized claim, so he better have some pretty God-sized miracles. So he's walking around Galilee, and he's doing these miracles, and the people are amazed. They are in awe of his miracles. And so they keep following him, and he comes to this place, this mountain, where he settles down, and his disciples gather around with him. And, and, and along with the disciples are the multitudes, now, within this multitude would be Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They depended on self-righteous religion. They were going to earn their salvation. They were going to earn their favor in God's sight. And so they were busy doing a lot of stuff. But what self-righteous people always do is they set standards that they can meet, but you can't. Because they're always comparing themselves to other people. And so, you know, it's, it's okay for me to get a divorce because I wrote this certificate. But it's not okay for you to get a divorce. So you better just wallow in your shame while I puff myself up with pride. That's what the self-righteous always do. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were twisting the law. They were twisting God's commandments to suit their lifestyle so they could heap shame and guilt on others while puffing themselves up. They're in this multitude. And Jesus is preaching a sermon that refutes the self-righteous religion of the day. And so we examined the self-righteous. We'll actually we'll, we'll review it next week, so I won't get into the whole summary. But, but we looked at the self-righteous religion and how Jesus corrects their theology with all these, you have heard it said, but I tell you statements. And then he directly confronts their hypocrisy because the self-righteous religious people of the day loved to be, be religious in front of other people. Hear how great of a prayer I am. If you ever think like, man, I'm really good at praying, you might need to check yourself on your self-righteousness. So he, he confronts the hypocrisy and he coins the term hypocrite. And then he gets into the judge not lest ye be judged. And, and there's the log that everybody has in their own eye, but they're trying to take out these little splinters out of other people's eyes. And then he forces them into a decision. And that's where we picked up. Well, actually, he closes the body of the, uh, of the sermon with, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So all of the Old Testament could be summed up in this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the basic principle. Now, how we live that principle out is going to look drastically different in every context, right? You see someone walking around with a big uh, mark on their face. Now, if I was walking around and I've got like some crusty stuff on my face, do I want someone to tell me? Yes, I do. Okay, I should probably go tell them. But maybe there's some other things where it's like, well, I don't really, I won't want someone to speak up in this, so maybe I won't speak to this person in this circumstance. So we see it's a principle that applies in different contexts. So that's how he closes out the body of the sermon. And then he forces them into a decision point. And the decision is, will you follow the self-righteous religion of the day? Or will you follow Jesus? Will you depend on the self-righteous religion of the day? Or will you depend on Jesus? I think it's a very applicable conclusion for us today as well. 
there is a culture today that is against Jesus. And the self-righteousness is displayed in other ways. It may not be the self-righteousness that the Pharisees displayed. But we look all around and people are constantly displaying their self-righteousness. Look how good I am. I don't buy certain products. Bud Light, not me, thank you, I'm too good for that product. And I'll let everybody know just how good I am. I don't go to Target. Are you kidding me? How dare you, sinner, go to Target? We do it all the time. Display our self-righteousness. And so we are forced into the same question. Now, I'm not saying you can't not shop at Target. That's okay if you decide not to shop at Target. But are you displaying your self-righteousness by telling everyone? We do it all the time. So he's forcing us into this, to this uh, decision point. Are we going to continue to rely on our self-righteousness? Are we going to follow the culture of the day? Or are we going to follow Jesus? And so we pick up in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, uh, so we're getting into this conclusion, right? And, and this section he starts off with, not everyone who says to me. So he just finished up talking about the wolves, and you can identify them by their fruit. And then he transitions into this idea that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we can identify a, a tree by its fruit, right? We can identify a wolf by its fruit. But there, are, there is a self-deception that we have where we can make ourselves think that we are in relationship with God. And that's what he's getting at here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. So this term Lord simply means master or teacher or sir. And Jesus is claiming the authority here of the Messiah. He is saying that he will be the one who will judge in the end. So in the end, people will be crying out to him, Lord, Lord, master, master, haven't I been? Don't you know me? So people are going to be crying out to him, but not all will enter the kingdom. And later he'll explain why. But for now, we need to know that we can deceive ourselves into thinking 
we have made it. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we have somehow earned it. We can deceive ourselves by saying, look at the work I have done. Aren't I a blessing to you, God? Maybe it's look at the doctrine I have. I had all of the doctrine right, God. Look how good I am. I never did the bad stuff you said not to do. So we can deceive ourselves. And if we can deceive ourselves, we must ask the question, how do I know if I have deceived myself or not? Another way to say it is, how do I know if I've actually put my faith and trust in Christ? How do I know if I am saved? I think Jesus answers this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, that but there is contrasting that, right? The, the idea that not everyone knows Jesus, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So how do I know if I'm actually saved? It is by doing the will of the Father. Now, I think it's really important we get this straight. Jesus is not arguing for a works-based salvation. He's not saying if you do the will of the Father, you will be saved. I can't emphasize this enough. It's not an argument for works-based salvation, that by doing the will of the Father, therefore you are saved. But you have proof of your salvation by doing the will of your Father. If you never do the will of the Father, you should be questioning your own salvation. If you've never done the will of the Father, you should be asking, have I actually put my faith and trust in Christ? If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, then the will of the Father begins to naturally flow out from you. So you've been saved, and that actually transforms you. That actually changes your heart. That actually changes your desires. It changes your motives. The salvation changes who you are. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, it changes who you are. It changes, therefore, your behavior as well. And it's important to understand, and I can't emphasize this enough, it's not, I changed myself, therefore God has saved me. It is, God has saved me, therefore I begin to change. And that change can only come from Jesus. Now don't get me wrong, some of us are good enough that we can white-knuckle ourselves into some good behavior. We can try really hard to make it look like we're producing good fruit. Sometimes you're around people who you desire to be like. You're like, wow, that person is amazing. I just love how they are. And so you're going to work really hard at making yourself more and more like that person to conform your behavior to that person. And we can do that for a little while. But lasting change the change that comes from Jesus is lasting and it's a natural change. It's not one that you have to force. So as I submit to scripture, as I let God change my heart, it no longer becomes a struggle because my desires actually change. To hit upon one that, that most men struggle with. Lust. 
when you are struggling with lust, how, I know so many men, and, and I'll, I'll confess, I've done this too, where you just are going to white knuckle it and you tell yourself, I will never lust at another girl, another girl again. I will never look at another girl with lustful intentions. And then the next day you see a girl, and what do you do? You lust. And then you beat yourself up over it. And you tell yourself, I'm never going to do that again. I hate the shame that I feel. I hate the way I feel when I do this. So I'm never going to do it again. And you work really hard until you see another beautiful lady. And what do you do? And you go through this cycle. I have experienced that cycle. But what's amazing about Christ is when you put your faith and trust in him and you submit to his word, he naturally begins to change your heart so that you can actually be free from lust. And it's not white knuckling it. It's not like beating yourself up to produce a new behavior. It's that your focus switches from your behavior to God. And as your focus switches, that behavior becomes less and less. And the behavior that God desires from you becomes more and more. So that's how that works. That's how God begins the transformation process. So those sins that used to have their grip on you, those sins that you could never, be con- that you could never control, become less and less in your life. And if you haven't experienced a heart change, if all those sins still have a grip on you, you might ask the question, have I actually put my faith and trust in Christ? So then we might want to ask, you know, if if doing the will of the Father is what gives us evidence that we have been saved, we might ask, what is the will of the Father? And we can go back to what Jesus says in verse 12, how he closes out the body of the sermon. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. If you are growing in the golden rule, if you've left behind what Ephesus called the wooden rule, and you've left behind the silver rule, and you've been fully embracing the golden rule, that's doing the will of the Father. Beyond that, when Jesus is confronted by the legalists, and they ask him, they're trying to trap him, and they're like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And what does he tell them? He says, well, first of all, we see sometimes people want to make an argument that all the commandments are on equal footing, and I think that's wrong. He says, what are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord your, your God. And then the second one is like it, which means like all the other commandments are kind of tertiary, right? They're, they're kind of down a little bit lower. But, but the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what, how do you know if you're doing the will of the Father? Are you growing in love for God? And I don't mean like trying to wrangle up some emotional reaction to God. And I don't mean like, are you growing by just white knuckling some obedience to a law? But are you growing in an affection towards God? And are you growing, you want to pursue him more and more in your life? If you want to pursue God more and more in your life, then I would say you're growing in your love for God. That's doing the will of the Father. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you are growing in love for others, then you are doing the will of the Father. Not 
if you are growing in your condemnation towards others. Not if you are growing in your condemnation to a society that you disagree with, to a culture you disagree with. But if you are growing in love for others. Now don't get me wrong, love speaks the truth. I listened to, a, to an interview with a guy who uh, is bipolar. It was a fantastic interview. He's not a believer, but he was talking about, you know, he's got a mental uh, he's got a mental illness. And there are times in this mental illness where he becomes delusional. And like there are times when he thinks that his his ex-girlfriend is working with the FBI and the CIA to plot against him. And what he said is, at that time in my life, when I'm delusional, I do not need friends to embrace my delusion with me. I do not need my friends to be like, it's okay, we're going to go ahead and hide you in a bunker until it all blows over. He said, what I need the most in that moment, the people that really love me in that moment tell me, you're being delusional. Have you taken your meds lately? Because this is not reality. So to love someone is to tell them the truth. When someone is being delusional, to love them is to tell them the truth, not to embrace the delusion with them. But it's to do it in a loving way, and it's to do it out of a, out of a care for them, out of a love for them, not as a, out of a condemnation for them. So are you doing the will of the Father? How do you know if you're saved? You're doing the will of the Father. How do you know if you're doing the will of the Father? You're growing in your love for God and you're growing in your love for other people. If you are not growing in your love for God and if you're not growing in your love for other people, then I would question whether or not you've actually put your faith and trust in Christ. I'd question whether or not you've had a heart change that comes with putting your faith and trust in Christ. So Jesus then lets us know that many people have convinced themselves because they've done a lot of stuff. So it's not just that people have deceived themselves. A lot of people have deceived themselves because they've done great things. And we pick up in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So this term on that day is a reference to the end times, to a reference to the judgment. When God will judge, when Christ, because he is the Messiah, because he is God come in the flesh, will judge everyone on earth. Those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ will be judged based on their works, by their actions, by their behaviors. And those who have put their faith and trust in Christ will be judged based on Christ's work on the cross. And that's important for us to understand. It's important for us to all understand that because each and every single one of us have rebelled against God at some point in our lives. And you might argue that you haven't. But have you ever at some point in your life said, you know what, God, I know you've given this command here in this life. I know you've given me this principle to do unto others as I would have them do unto you. But you don't quite understand my circumstance. So I'm going to go ahead and just do it a different way. I'm going to treat them how they've been treating me. Because really, they need to feel the pain of that. Have you ever done that? If you've done that, then you have rebelled against God. And God is holy and just and righteous. 
And because he is a holy, just, righteous God, when we rebel against him, we become separated from him. And we deserve eternal death because we have rebelled against a holy, just, perfect God. But what's amazing about this holy, just, perfect God is he's not just holy and just and perfect. He's also perfect in love. And because he is perfect in love, he came to this earth and he paid the price for our rebellion against him. By dying on the cross for our sin, for our rebellion. And he invites us back into that relationship with him. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in his work on the cross. And when you do that, he no longer judges by your actions, but by the actions of Christ. And he covers you with the righteousness of Christ. And so he no longer says that you are a slave to sin, but that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you are just, that you are pure. In Ephesians 2.10, I love how he puts it. He says that we are his workmanship. That word for workmanship is actually original masterpiece. God calls you his original masterpiece, his original work of art. He loves you with an intense, undying love. And he invites you back into this relationship that he has provided by his work on the cross. So as we remind ourselves of these truths, we actually are freed from sin and we actually begin to change, I should say he begins to change our hearts. So in your name, so they're doing all these things in his name, and in your name means that they were doing all this stuff thinking they were representatives of Jesus. We, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name. So they're saying all this stuff, that they did all this stuff in him, in his name as representatives of him. Now, if we remember, this is coming off the hills of the tree and the fruit analogy. We'll recognize wolves by their fruit, right? We can deceive ourselves into thinking because we do good stuff in Jesus' name that we are bearing good fruit. When really this is the epitome of fake fruit. Now, if you were a looker on, and you saw these people doing all of these things in Jesus' name, you would probably say, look at all that fruit. Surely they're believers. And if you're being introspective, you would probably say, of course I know Jesus. Look at all this fruit in my life. I'm doing all these big, great things. It's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking we are righteous because we do the stuff. Because we believe the right things. Because we have memorized scripture. Because we live in a Christian home. And so because we can deceive ourselves, we need to assess, is my fruit fake? Is it real looking but actually toxic? So how does this deception come about? How do we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're actually followers. I think it come, I think James 1, 14 through 15 kind of paints this for us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by his by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what he's getting at here, though, if we go back to 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's our own desire that produces this deception in us, right? And so what is the desire of, of the self-righteous? The desire of the self-righteous is to be proven to God that they are worthy through their own works. So I think the big question, how we can assess are we, being, are we deceiving ourselves with fake fruit is, does this fruit make me righteous? Do my works make me righteous? Am I relying on all of these things to make me righteous? Do, can I look at my doctrine and say, see, I've got the right doctrine right there. I'm righteous. I, write, I wrote a great doctoral thesis on my own righteousness. That is utter proof that I am righteous. The, the desire is to have our own righteousness based on our own works instead of a righteousness that is based on Christ. That is the deception of self-righteousness. And it makes us jump through these hoops, the, this desire that I can be righteous in myself, not holding on to the righteousness of Christ. And when we have that desire, then we produce all of this fake fruit that is really just a deception. It's not real. It's totally fake. And not only is it totally fake, but it is absolutely toxic. So next, Jesus will give us the result of this toxic fruit. Verse 23, And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they're doing, what's crazy is they're doing all this great work, right? In Jesus' name, they're doing this great work. They have this great doctrine in Jesus' name. They're teaching people in Jesus' name. They're doing all the stuff that you and I would think are great fruit in Jesus' name. But they are deceiving themselves. So the first thing we need to notice in verse 23 is that Jesus is saying, I don't know you. Now, the word know here means to have a relationship with. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know them like, or know of them. He knew them actually better than they knew themselves. That's why he knows this is fake fruit. But they don't actually have a relationship with him. Depart from me because you actually never had this relationship with me. Even though you knew my name, you were never really associated with me. Now, the word lawlessness in the Greek is uh, anomia, and it means lawless or wickedness, to have a disregard for the law. Now, this is not the idea of making a mistake. We all make mistakes. It's not even the idea of having a struggle. We have had struggles. And God will continually transform us. And sometimes we have struggles that we don't even know we had until God convicts us of that struggle. But the idea here is someone that is doing all this activity to prove their righteousness, prove that God has blessed them, yet does not care about the commandments God has given, 
does not actually desire to mature in the faith, does not actually want to conform to God's standard, but desires to be the standard bearer themselves. So this person does great deeds, may even convince themselves that they are with God. But your great deeds, how many people you've taught, your credentials, your doctrine, none of that can actually save you. And none of that actually means you have a relationship with God. If you want to assess if you are known by God, ask yourself if you have a desire to conform to his word. If you have a desire to continue to pursue him more. If you are growing in your love for others. If you are conforming to his word, you will grow in your love for others. And you will grow in your love for God. It's that simple. If you are not growing, but continually grumbling against other people. If you're not growing, but continually condemning other people. If you're not growing, but you continually try to pick the speck out of other people's eyes while holding that big old log up to your eye, then you're actually embracing self-righteousness. Not Christ's righteousness. One of the traps that we might find ourselves falling into after this teaching is to begin to judge another person's salvation. The beginning of this chapter actually discourages us from doing this. Those who are not saved will eventually give evidence. The fruit will eventually rot, or you will eventually see the fruit as toxic. It is impossible for onlookers to determine the salvation of those who profess faith. So often I get asked if so-and-so is really a believer. My answer is I don't know their heart. I don't know their struggle. I don't know their beginning point. So if they profess, profess faith, well, I'm not the judge of who's a believer and who's not. Jesus is, and Jesus knows your heart. But I do know my own heart. And I do know if I'm trusting my own works for my salvation. I do know if I'm trying to earn God's favor with my great works. And I do know if I'm trusting his works alone for my righteousness. So then Jesus concludes the sermon with a picture that gives us a warning. Starting in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So here we have two builders. If we want to paint a picture, we could say that those houses are in the cookie-cutter houses that you see in some neighborhoods, right? Exactly the same. Same layout, same material, even the same paint. So this is describing the wolf and the self-righteous person. They can look exactly the same as the person who truly put their faith and trust in Christ who is looking toward Christ alone for their righteousness. 
the works, the fruit, can oftentimes look the exact same. But one house is built on a sturdy foundation. This is the only difference is the foundation. One is built on a sturdy foundation, therefore is immovable. The other is built on sand and therefore will crash. Think about the last time you were at the beach and the waves came. I can remember as a kid trying to build a sand castle, not knowing about tides. And while the tides were coming in, I was trying to build and it was impossible. The waves kept knocking it down and washing away the sand. And so what I tried to do is I tried to buy, build a trench around it. Have you ever done that? Like, sweet, I'm going to protect this thing. I'm going to build a trench. The wave will come up. It will fill in the trench. And then it will come back out. But what happens? The wave comes in, destroys the trench, and the very next wave then destroys the sandcastle. So I thought, maybe I'm, I'm quick enough. I'm pretty quick. I'm a good digger. I'll just dig in between every single wave. I'll just dig out that trench again and again and again. And I was working really hard to keep that trench clean, but I just couldn't do it. The trench got washed away over and over again. Sand is a horrible foundation. And if you're trying to earn your righteousness, that's exactly what's going on. And in comes the, the wave and, and the temptation, and you think, I can just hurry up and dig a ditch around this, this castle that I've built, the castle of my own self-righteousness. But that wave is going to come, and you might be able to dig it out a couple times before eventually the waves will wash it away. And what do you do? You go back to your dark room of shame. And you beat yourself up. And you think, man, I just wasn't good enough at digging out my trenches. And the problem isn't the trench. The problem is you've built your foundation on your own self-righteousness. Your own works. And so every time that castle gets washed away, you go back into a dark room of shame. And Jesus is calling you out of the dark room of shame. And saying, no, quit building the foundation on your own righteousness Come build it on his, which is a rock. And no matter how much the waves come, no matter how much the floods come, your righteousness will stand because it's actually built on Christ and Christ alone. The only foundation that can hold up to the shifting culture of our world, that can hold up to when tragedy strikes, that can hold up to actually when you fell, when you make a mistake, is the foundation of Christ. And his words. So we have a foundation. A firm foundation. A solid foundation. That we can build on. And we're forced into a decision. Just like the narrow gate and the wide gate. Jesus forces us into a decision. Will you continue to try and build your foundation on the sand. Knowing that it's going to get wiped away. Knowing that it's going to be worthless. Or will you build your foundation on Christ? If you build your faith on anything but Jesus, when the culture shifts, when tragedy strikes, when you mess up again, your faith will fall apart because you built it on sand. The Pharisees built their houses on sand on their own righteousness, on their ability to fulfill the law. But what happens when you fail? You either give up, you go into the dark room of shame, or 
like the Pharisees did, you change the standard. And that's what we see the Pharisees doing all the time, changing the standard. And that is what Jesus is confronting. That is why he has all the you have heard it said, but I say statements. The Pharisees had changed the standard to suit themselves. The challenge then is, will you hear Jesus' words? Will you follow him? Will you build your righteousness on him? Or will you continue to follow the self-righteous religion of the Pharisees? I think it applies to us today. Will you build your faith on Christ and his words? Will you let his words convict you? Will you let his words change you? Or will you continue to pursue your own righteousness, thinking you can build a foundation without Christ? You cannot stand on your own righteousness. It has to be the righteousness of Christ. He is the rock. So Matthew concludes the sermon with giving us a picture of how the crowds reacted. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the multitude was astonished. The word astonished means utterly amazed, not just amazed, not just in awe of, but utterly and completely amazed. And it wasn't just the teaching. Now, don't get me wrong. This is the best sermon ever preached, right? His teaching was magnificent. Jesus was the most intelligent person in our history. His teaching has many layers to it. We could study this sermon for several more years and continue to get stuff out of it. We've barely only scratched the surface on this one study. But that was not what made the people utterly amazed. What made the people utterly amazed was him teaching with authority, as one with authority. Now, I need Scripture. I need to be under the guidance and the authority of Scripture. Without Scripture, I am lost, and my sermons would actually be absolute rubbish. Now, don't get me wrong, I could give a motivational speech, but it wouldn't last, it wouldn't have the impact, because what really makes or breaks a sermon is Scripture. And the preacher being under the authority of Scripture. I recognize it's my, my words do not change a heart. The Holy Spirit working through Scripture changes hearts. So the scribes and the Pharisees relied on the Torah and the Ten Commandments. They relied on human tradition. Christ, on the other hand, speaks. And it becomes Scripture. One of the main themes of Matthew that will unfold throughout the remainder of the gospel is this issue of authority. The Pharisees will constantly question his authority, battle his authority, and Christ will constantly demonstrate his authority. And so the question with the Sermon on the Mount, the question that it all comes to, is will we submit to the authority of Christ Will we enter through the narrow gate? Will we build our faith on his words? Or will we perish? Oh Lord, we thank you so much that we don't have to depend on our own self-righteousness. We don't have to look towards ourselves to try to earn our salvation and then just throw it all away when we eventually mess up. But that you came and you came to redeem us from our own rebelliousness. 
and that we can build a righteousness that is founded on you and your work, that we can be covered in your righteousness, that even when we mess up, we can still hold tight to your righteousness, that we never have to go back to the dark room of shame and try to work our way out of it, but that we can live in your grace. And we pray that you would help us to be a people that as we grow in your righteousness, we would grow in our love for you and our love for others. In your holy name we pray.